And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Ian Irving and coming up on today's show, David Ornstein joins us for a midweek transfer roundup with Manchester United's offer to free agent Christian Eriksen, Calvin Phillips' move to Man City and Tottenham looking like they mean serious business all on the agenda. Plus, Everton correspondent Greg O'Keefe has been digging into the fascinating story of a surprise proposed takeover of the club. First up though, the Athletics Jack Pitt Brook is here to reflect on what's been a strange week or so, that's one word for it, for Gareth Southgate's England team. The result last night, an embarrassing 4-0 home defeat to Hungary, was the country's heaviest home defeat in nearly a century, the worst defeat anywhere for 12 years. It's piled the pressure, it seems, on Gareth Southgate, if you listen to the fans, if not the squad. Tonight was the sort of night that a lot of my predecessors have had and experienced, and it's difficult to, to stand, and um, I'm not going to say it doesn't hurt. Um, but four but... games during this Nation League period, one goal and just one point, with only two games to go to Qatar. Are we allowed to panic yet, Jack? Yes, I think so, but I wouldn't panic about the performances so much because... I do take Gareth Southgate's argument that this is such a weird set of get like, four games at the end of the season. It's been an exhausting season. Uh, he hasn't got his full squad available. He's had to rotate. And ultimately, the, you know, I hate to say it, these games don't matter a lot. Then it's not very important that, that England should finish, you know, second rather than third or fourth in their Nations League group. So I wouldn't panic about the performance, but what, what is worth thinking about very seriously is the, the level of feeling and the sort of toxicity and. Yes personal abuse and everything targeted at Gareth Southgate at Molyneux last night. Like I've been, you know, I've been covering England for years and I never thought, I never thought I'd see this. I always thought that Southgate was different somehow, that Southgate was, uh, he generated so much credit through everything he's done and the way he's conducted himself in the World Cup campaign and the Euros campaign that you'd never see this. And this was like, you know, Steve McLaren and Andorra. It was just, it was relentless abuse from the England fans. And yeah, England played rubbish. And yeah, they deserve to lose badly. And it's been a pretty bad month for them. But this level of like, uh, sacked in the morning, you don't know what you're doing. I am still, I'm not shocked, but I'm still kind of taken a bit aback by how bad it was yesterday. Yeah, I agree. I think the sense that the team could be booed off at the end of a result and a performance like that, especially after the the, the string of, of results that England have had uh, over the last sort of ten days or so, I can I can see that happening, and I'm, I'm sure that would have happened whoever the manager was. But yeah, the the sort of strength of the chanting, really. Considering Jack, do you not think that Gareth Southgate's done more than any England manager that I can remember to sort of bridge that gap between fans and players and and fans and the England team in, in the sense that we we feel much more of a connection to this side than a lot of the teams in the past and a key reason for that is the manager. Yeah, I completely agree. And that and that's why it's so surprising is that 
like you say, everything that Southgate's done since he took over from Allardyce in 2016 has been built on this foundation of we've got to reconnect with the fans, we've got to get, you know, we've had too long where the fans haven't felt any kind of connection with the players. And by that he means both, you know, the people that go to the England games and also the broader country at large. Uh, and we've got to get people back on the same page. And that's been a huge, you know, whether in club or in international football, that's such an important thing in any football team, to have the team manager and the fans all pulling in the same direction. And Southgate's managed it, and it's, you know, that's been one of his huge achievements. Our, you know, And that's really underpinned getting to the semis of the, of the World Cup, getting to the final of the Euros, everything he's done. And so yesterday, it was completely in tatters. It felt like, you know, the, the, people, the crowd at Molyneux had just put it all on fire. I guess the, the kind of next question is, can we, is that recoverable? Is it going to be, you know, England yeah. got two games, obviously, England's next game is in September, um, Italy away, Germany at home in the Nations League. Is it going to be this, is it going to be like that again? I suspect probably not. I think this is, I guess this is more of a one-off, but it does suggest to me that, you know, something is fundamentally, not broken, but fundamentally changed in that relationship now. Yeah, I can hear supporters shouting at the pair of us listening to this. Is Southgate too negative? That is he too pragmatic? That that's the key criticism it seems of him. What do you think? I think after, at about two or three nil yesterday, there was a fan who was a few rows behind us who stormed out, and as he stormed out, he leaned over and shouted, "F off, Southgate, you negative." I don't know. Can I say bastard on this? You just podcast? have. I'm not sure. You well, just have. Yeah. <laughs> You're only reporting accurately. That's all yeah. we ask for. Yeah. So I guess it's a good question. Like, is he too negative? Um, my own view on this is no. I don't think he is too negative. Uh, clearly, there's a lot of fans out there who just want him to play four three three. They want Grealish in the front three. They want Foden Mount in the midfield three. They want Trent to play. They want all the the fun, exciting <laughs> attacking players to play at the same time. And we're going to wipe the floor with the rest of the world. Personally, I think that if you think that, you haven't watched any international football in the last 20 years. That isn't how international football works. International football is won by teams who are organised, defensively disciplined. They know what they're doing. They've got a clear structure. They're not trying to play teams off the pitch. They're not trying to play the entire game in the opposition half. It's just not like that. And it's not just, you know, Greece 2004. You know, Germany 2014 were a really organised team. Del Bosque Spain team were a really, really organised team. And they bored people because of how they, it was all about structure and possession. But they managed to win, win three tournaments in the spin. Like that, that is just how international football is. So, like, I do think there are really, really legitimate criticisms of Gareth Southgate, namely the way that England lost control of the World Cup semi-final against Croatia four years ago, the way England lost control of the final of the Euros through, if we're honest, a not great Italy team. Like, Italy, England completely blew that. You know, they were 1-0 up with, what, 30 minutes left? The World Cup qualifying campaign shown that for Italy yeah. as well, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, and they completely blew it. So if you, I, I'm not like a complete South you know, Gareth Easter. Like, I think there are legitimate criticisms of Southgate. And I think that the fight, you know, England's performance in the second half of the final of the Euros is a really good place to start. But I just don't buy into this whole, like, Southgate is too negative. He's putting the handbrake on thing because I think it's just living in a fantasy world. Like, it's just like England are not. If we played the team that people who think that want us to play, we would lose all the time. Like, remember when England actually played that formation when they played Hungary at home? In the um, in the qualifiers about a year ago, and they were rubbish. They were four three three with Foden and Mount in the midfield. They were terrible. Even yesterday in the second half, they had a th- sort of three five two with Foden and Mount in the midfield. It got worse, yeah. And they got worse, and they, and they kept conceding goals. So, and Southgate did say to us afterwards, you know, I've learned a lot about you know what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And what I took that to mean is, 
safety first. I learned that this England team has to be safety first because if I just try and do what you know some people in the media and some people in the fans think, then we're going to get done on the counter every time. Yeah, but let's not forget where we've come from. Um, our first final in 60, uh, 60 years nearly. Um, a semi-final in the World Cup uh, compared to where we were over the last 50 years, you know. So, um, yeah, there's no time to panic. Of course, I understand their frustration. Um, we want to win every time we put on an English shirt. And, um, but look, we've got to take it on the chin. You know, it's not going to be perfect every game. Uh, we have to understand that. The crowd have to understand that. The fans. Interesting that, isn't it? Because it's actually potentially going to make England even more pragmatic under Southgate. And that yeah. seems to be the key, the key issue that people have. Is there any sense that he's under any sort of pressure or there's any sort of question about his future as the England manager he and Harry Kane certainly batted away any suggestion of that post-match in the interviews and the press conference last night no not he's not under pressure in the way that an under pressure club club manager is under pressure I don't think you know he's obviously he's just signed his contract extension which I believe takes him up to 2024 the chance of him like getting sacked after a bad result and not being the manager for the World Cup I'd say are literally zero, not yeah. close to zero. They are zero. He'll 100% be the England manager for the World Cup. And even if even if the World Cup goes disastrously badly, will he get sacked? I'd be really surprised. I suppose, I suppose, like, speculates, this is pure speculation on my part, if the World Cup goes disastrously badly, I don't think it's inconceivable that he would walk. Yeah, he but seems I that, think, that type of character, doesn't he? In that like he did say the other day to the, to the press, you know, I'm not going to overstay my welcome in this job. And I think Southgate, you know, knows that, you know, this is going to be his, what, his third tournament. Um, he's been in the job for coming up to six years now. That's quite a long stint in this job. Um, but I, I, no, he's not under pressure in the way that, you know, a club manager whose team is in 17th in October is under pressure, I don't think. On the flip side then of all of this, you wrote about it ahead of the, the match against Hungary, saying that really these players just need a holiday. That's that's the key thing that they need. They look tired uh, elsewhere. People like Kevin De Bruyne and Virgil van Dijk have been very outspoken about whether they thought these Nations League matches were necessary. They certainly didn't think so. Um, there is a defence in that for these England players, isn't there? But I suppose to flip side on the flip side, everyone else is in the same boat, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I, I agree on both parts. Like, I do think these games are a bit of a nonsense. I think having, you know, having f- making players play four international games all the way through to mid June is crazy. Like that, you know, four games. That's more than England played at the twenty fourteen World Cup. Um, so I think it's a bit. I think it is a bit of a joke, and it does show really how nobody, you know, the the organisers of football don't care about the players. They just want to p- keep piling on more games, more competitions all the time. You know, they all, they don't care about the players. And to be honest, they don't really care about international football either. So they would stick it at the end of the season when people aren't really watching. Um, it, you know, and it's worth it's worth remembering that it's only really happening now because of the Qatar World Cup. You know, if the World Cup was, if, you know, under in a normal circumstances, in inverted commas, the World Cup would be happening now. And these four Nations League games would have been happening two in October, two in November. And it would have just been like a normal international calendar. Um, so, yeah, there are... probably all- good, though, that the World Cup hasn't happened now for this team, isn't it? Or would it be different? Yeah, I don't feel like England are in a good moment, as football people say, uh, right now. So so maybe in that sense, it has worked out for them. But yeah, I mean, it's one point that Southgate has made a lot, is you are seeing some weird results at the moment. Like France, you know, France got some terrible results. Italy got some bad results. So I think a lot of, like, big countries 
are performing really badly because the players are exhausted, they can't pick their best players. And you know, the fact is Southgate's been telling us repeatedly, like, I've had to rotate my team through these games as if it were pre-season just because, you know, to preserve... You know, even last night he said, like, you know, I'm sure, like, it might have been more pragmatic if I played Rice and Maguire in this game because they're big, experienced players. But he just didn't want to risk them getting injured because he knows they're exhausted. So... Uh, in that sense, there's a lot of management going on. But you're right, it is the same for everyone. You know, Hungary had to play four games too, and they beat us twice. Yes. You know, Germany had to play four games, and they, well, they completely outplayed us in the first hour of that game in Munich last week. So it's not a uniquely, you know, everyone else is in this position. And I'm sure people might say, oh, but the Premier League's more tiring than the Hungarian League. And maybe it is, but, you know, we're one of the richest, you know, we've got one of the richest, we've got the richest football league in the world, one of the richest countries in Europe. We should be able to get a team out that gets, that scores a goal in from open play from these four games. So, yeah, very bad. Mitigating circumstances do exist, but they also exist for other countries who play better than us. Yeah, that's it. I suppose as well, Jack, the final point on this, that there's been players, high-profile players, left out of, of this squad for, for differing reasons. Southgate was quite outspoken when he was asked directly about the chances of Marcus Rashford and Jadon Sancho in particular making their way back into this squad. Uh, Eric Dyer's may be another name that springs to mind as well. Do you see it being a, a really tough task for people to break back into this squad, considering how this last 10 days has gone? Well, when the squad was announced, I probably would have said, no, I think those guys are going to find it really hard to get back in. If you're not in this one, I think it's going to be tough. But I just kind of got the impression from, maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading much, too much between the lines, but I did get the impression from Southgate's press conference yesterday that he's going to think now, maybe I'm going to slightly move the dial back towards experience for Qatar. Yeah. You know, it's all very, you know, he's, he's played a lot of very young players. He's played Bowen, he's played Bellingham, he's played Reese James, he's played Saka a lot. Um, they played kind of Gallagher and Tamori, Gehi. Like, he's been, there's been a, a lot of fresh players here. The results haven't been great. And I think Southgate probably thinks, well, maybe some of these guys are good players for the next cycle of the 2024. But maybe this, maybe this World Cup campaign. There is a place for an Eric Dyer or Marcus Rashford or, I don't know, uh, other players who've been there and seen it and done it before rather than always going for the newer option. Um, there's just, just a feeling that I get. Um, mm. I certainly think they could do with Dyer because I think Dyer is, in the, if they're going to play the back three, in the middle of the back three, as good as anyone in the country. I think he's better than Connor Cody in that position. Rashford and Sancho, I mean, Southgate did sound pretty downbeat on those he two. He did, didn't he? Yeah, Pers- he did. My personal guess is that I think Sancho is likely to get than Rashford just because Sancho did improve a lot in the second half of last season. Whereas Rashford, I feel like, is just heading in the wrong direction. Yeah, it all depends on how those two do at Manchester United first and foremost, doesn't it? And then and then go from there. Right, well, elsewhere, uh, World Cup qualifying is still going on, or it was going on uh, last night. Australia are one of the sides who have made it through. Uh, Andrew Redmayne was the hero during a shootout against Peru and Gear Jordet on The Athletic has brilliantly broken down every trick in the book that the goalkeeper used last night, including throwing his opposite number's water bottle into the stands that had instructions on it uh, during the shootout. Incredible, Jack. I mean, that is shithousery of the greatest order, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. No. I think it's... I think we kind of... Maybe it was inevitable because we've, you know, we all spent in the media now. There's always so much. Oh, isn't it amazing? They've got a water bottle. They've written it down. The water bottle. It's genius. Tape and a piece of paper. Yeah, you know, Jordan Pickford. Uh, I think Bryce Samba did it for Forest in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it's now an increasingly, uh, you know, the more that people go on about it, the more that the more inevitable I suppose it was in hindsight that somebody would try and spoil it 
like this. Um, but yeah, it was. I'd never seen anything like it before. I mean, I yeah, it's right on the edge of uh, what good sportsmanship is. But then you know, a place that the World Cup is at stake, you're probably going to uh, push the boat out a bit, aren't you? Yeah, I imagine he's not going to be holidaying in South America anytime soon, certainly. Um, Costa Rica as well, uh, another side who made it to the World Cup. You might remember Joel Campbell, who used to play for Arsenal. He scored the crucial goal against New Zealand, which sent his country through as well. Uh, and of course, England's group has been confirmed during this period as well. You'll know this by now, I'm sure, with it being Wales who beat Ukraine in the qualifying to complete Group B, England, Iran, USA and Wales. And to be honest, Jack, if they don't make it through that group, there will be a lot of pressure on the team and on Southgate and everything. Yeah, I think it would be I think it would be basically unacceptable to the public for England to not get through. I think even if England went out in the quarterfinals, which obviously is like a kind of you know, standard level England achievement over the last sort of 30, 40 years, whatever, already since 1966. Even in quarterfinals, I think people would be a bit frustrated. Like the fact is that the last six years, Southgate has raised expectations so much. They they have to do well. Um, And so, yeah, if if, if they're not winning that group, they're in trouble. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Right, let's move it on to transfers then. I'm going to bring in David Ornstein in a minute. Uh, but first, Jack, this seems like a nice little segue for us, actually, because Calvin Phillips is one of the names that we're going to be talking about. There's a lovely explainer on The Athletic this morning all about the expectation, is the way it's phrased, of a bid from Manchester City. Um, of course, he became a symbol, really, didn't he, of the successful reign that Marcelo Bielsa had at Ellen Road. Um, how do you see him fitting into Pep Guardiola's regime at City? He'll improve him, won't he? Uh, yeah, I think I think it's quite a good fit. If you think of what Bielsa demands from his players, one is incredible physical fitness. Two is, or really even more than the fitness, is the ability to learn and internalise a really complex playbook of instructions and tactics and movements and everything. That is ultimately quite similar to how to how Guardiola works. Like the, the style of football they play is different, and the principles are different, but the sort of process of learning and learning and execution is, is quite similar. Um, so I think in that sense, Phillips will do well. You know, Phillips is also attracted to City because he's homegrown, which is very important to you know, clubs are playing in UEFA competitions. And of course, with, with Fernandinho leaving this summer after being at City for nine years now, City do need a bit more, they need a bit, bit more legs in midfield, a bit more energy. Rodri's had a fantastic season, but he's he's more, I mean, he, he is physically imposing, but he's not, he doesn't kind of buzz around a lot, Rodri. He's more sort of serene in what he does. So in that sense, I think Phillips will be a really good addition. I guess my only concern from Phillips' side would be, is he going to play enough football? You know, he's yeah. played every game for Leeds for years. Yeah, and, yeah. 
City going to have to change formation this season, of course, because they've got Haaland. So they're going to, I imagine they'll play sort of 4-2-3-1, 4-3-3 most of the time. Haaland up front, let's say Mares on the right, Foden or Grealish on the left. Then a midfield three of, let's say, Rod, I guess the first choice would be Rodri, Bernardo and De Bruyne. Now, yes. if Rodri, Bernardo and De Bruyne is the first choice midfield three, then Phillips isn't playing. Now, of course, you know, Rodri won't play every single game in every competition. And it's plausible that maybe Bernardo will have to play up on the right, or maybe Bernardo will be injured or rested and rotated. But my, my expectation at this point is that Phillips will start, let's say, 30 games next season, 40 games, rather than, say, 50 or 60. So, but that's, you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure he would know that when he <laughs> going into it. It's not going to be news to him listening to the podcast. No, not at all. And I guess it's the quality of those 30 to 40 performances that he puts in for Manchester City, which will decide whether he's still a key part of England's team going to that World Cup as well, or midway through the season. You get my point anyway. Right, let's bring in David Ornstein. Good morning, David. Thank you for joining us. So we've just been speaking there about Calvin Phillips' move to Manchester City. Do you expect it to happen? It's felt a bit inevitable, hasn't it? There have been reports for a while. Um, Jack's talked there about how he will fit in for Manchester City if indeed he does come. And I think there's an understanding um, that once his change of representation uh, is complete because he's coming towards the end of his agency contract with his existing intermediary, I think Manchester City were waiting for clarity around that. Leads to you know, the suggestion we're receiving and there's a big piece on The Athletic by Phil Hay, uh, Sam Lee and Adam Crafton, which explains that there are sources who think this will be done quite swiftly. They have to come to an agreement on price, um, but I think there is uh, an intention from Manchester City to get this wrapped up and Leeds will be expecting Calvin Phillips to go, I think, and, and looking for ways in which they can replace him. OK, let's move it on because we need to talk Tottenham. There are so many stories mm. around Antonio Conte and his squad at the moment, it seems. And David, you've written most of them on The Athletic <laughs> this week, haven't you? Yeah, there's been a, uh, a few on Tottenham in, in these last few days, although possibly the most interesting one didn't come from me. Um, and I think it's still a bit of a work in progress. That's Eve Basuma. Um, reports broke on Monday um, morning time of... Brighton accepting or reaching an, an agreement with Tottenham for around £25 million plus add-ons. Some other reports suggested £30 million for the transfer of the 25-year-old who only has a year left on his contract. Um, and there has been a clear anticipation uh, that he will be moving this summer so that Brighton don't lose him as a free agent. However, this deal is not done yet. I think they still need to agree personal terms. Um, there's talk of a medical later this week. So I'd just be a bit cautious on this one until it's done and dusted because there will be other clubs interested in Eve Basuma. And just because uh, Brighton have agreed to deal with Tottenham, that doesn't mean it is complete yet. Um, I don't have personal in-depth knowledge on that one. So I'll direct you over to one in which I do because I did report that uh, the preference of Jed Spence, the Middlesbrough right-back, who was on loan at Nottingham Forest last season, is to sign permanently for Tottenham Hotspur. And that's good news for a lot of Tottenham fans. Um, it's not done equally. They need to agree a fee, Middlesbrough and Tottenham. They are talking. The negotiations are ongoing. There is no agreement as things stand. And there are lots of clubs interested in him. However, the preference of... This 21-year-old England under-21 international 
is to join Tottenham. The lure of Champions League football under Antonio Conte, um, I think is pretty persuasive in his mind. And they've already signed Ivan Perisic, um, Fraser Forster. They may get Basuma in. And if they add Jed Spence as well, it would be a spectacular start to the transfer window. We're not saying this is going to happen quickly. It might drag on, but I do think that is his most likely destination because it's where he would prefer to go. And then I also did a story that was slightly uh, unconnected to players, but equally a transfer of sorts in that Tottenham are set to appoint uh, as their new performance director, Greta Steinson, who had previously been at Everton, before that Fleetwood Town. He was a former Bolton Wanderers and Iceland uh, fullback. And um, and he's going to be going in in a wide-ranging role that's going to be essentially number two to the managing director of football, Fabio Paratici, at Tottenham. And I also mentioned in that report that a guy called Simon Davies, who was uh, an assistant to Vincent Company at Anderlecht, uh, he also worked in various positions within the Manchester City Academy prior to moving to Belgium. He was head of City's Academy for a period. He's a well-respected coach. He is set to go into Tottenham Hotspur also as the head of methodology. Um, and that will be working oh with the academy head at Tottenham, Dean Rastrick, um, Chris Powell, who's the head of coaching for the academy too. So a number of steps forward and appointments for Tottenham off the pitch. Uh, and they'll also be hoping to make more strides on it as well. So what a busy summer this is at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Jack, I'll ask you in a minute about how excited Tottenham fans should be about all of this. But first of all, any idea what a head of methodology is? No, I don't know. I don't honestly okay. know. I don't know what a head of methodology is. David? Style of play, identity, DNA, behaviours, cultures, experiences that... Um, Simon Davis has brought from his varied career as a player and coach. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> That's modern football for you, isn't it? That's a new term for our, our lexicon, I think. Um, how excited then, Jack, should Tottenham fans be about all of this? Because if having Antonio Conte guiding Spurs finally into the Champions League at the end of last season wasn't enough, all this news is only going to whet the appetite for the new campaign, isn't it? Yeah, I think we are seeing a very... Um... We're seeing a aggressive, ambitious Tottenham approach in the transfer market this summer, uh, which is really you know not something we've seen an awful lot from them over the years. But I do think there's an acceptance at the club that they can't let this moment of opportunity slip. You know, Daniel Levy's been accused in the quite a few times in the past of getting the team into a good position and not really having the ambition, or which is to say, the money to to really push on and try and make the most of it. Whereas this summer it looks to be different. You know, they've got this, they've got Conte to stay, they've got this £150 million cash injection. Uh, they've finally got the kind of full revenues flowing into the new stadium, which of course they weren't able to do for 18 months because of COVID. So I do think you know, clearly they are willing to throw their weight around. You're seeing that in the fact that they're, land, you know, they, they're not just going for players of resale value, they're going for big experienced stars like Perisic, they're, you know, they're going, Jed Spence is an exciting player. And then, to be honest, I think they're looking for, for more and more exciting players further up the pitch, like Adam Kraft and James McNicholas did a story saying that, you know, Tottenham are competing with Arsenal for Rafinha. Now, Rafinha is obviously a, a tremendously exciting player. He's been one of the best players in the Premier League at Leeds United. But Rafinha, I, think, I don't think would necessarily be a first-choice player at Tottenham. 
Would he? Like he's, he. I think he'd probably be a squad player competing with Kulisevsky, maybe competing with Son, maybe playing at wing back, maybe kind of dropping in different positions. And if they're going to, if, if Tottenham are in the mix to pay big money for someone who's not even starting, then that's really kind of big club behaviour. So in that sense, it does already feel like a different window from the windows we've seen from Tottenham in the past, certainly from the last few years. Yeah, it's the transition into a, a squad that doesn't have necessarily a first-choice team. It's a, a collection of players who can play in any given week to suit the opponents, I guess. Richarlison, David, is another name that you wrote about earlier on in the week. And what are the chances of him making the move down to London? Because he seems like another player who may not be necessarily an automatic first-choice player for Spurs if he was to make that move. Yeah, that's right, Ian. Let's explain the whole uh, chronology on this one. There were some reports that emanated from Brazil that Tottenham were in advanced negotiations to sign Richarlison for around 60 million euros. Reports which we then checked out and established that, yes, there is some interest from Tottenham, but no, they're not in negotiations with Everton yet. Um, That may follow, of course. Uh, At this point in time, Everton are setting an extremely high asking price for Richarlison even though he's only got two years to go on his contract. Although you might say that's the peak time at which you should sell. Uh, And with Calvert-Lewin, the other striker who's been linked with the move away from Everton, having three years on his contract, perhaps Richarlison is the one they'd prefer to sell. But Tottenham won't come to the level of finance that Everton would be looking for at this point. But there are a number of people around the game who think that with Everton's financial position, they may as the window goes on, gets squeezed into accepting a a lower figure for him. And that's when Tottenham might feel that they can pounce. And when you speak to certain sources around Everton, they think this move will end up happening by the end of the transfer window. So you've got Jack mentioning there the credible interest in Rafinha, but um, there is also interest in Richarlison. And that backs up the point we mentioned in the piece that Tottenham do have a number of options for this position. Um, They're weighing them up. They're seeing which is best value for money, seeing which is most doable. They're not clearly not looking for this central striker, but somebody that can play off wide. Um, They were linked to to with Gabriel Jesus from Manchester City, but I don't think that's one they're going to be pursuing with some others, in particular Arsenal and Chelsea Um, seemingly the most keen on him at this point. There's been reports of Real Madrid as well. I don't know how realistic they are to come to fruition. And so, yeah, Tottenham and Richarlison is certainly one to watch in the weeks ahead. Yeah, if you want to know more about any of these stories, of course, go to the app, have a look on The Athletic. Lots of interesting detail on their live transfer blogs going on right now as well. So check that out. Um, Jack, in terms of all this for Tottenham, does this mean that we can expect them to to challenge Manchester City and Liverpool? Are they the the best place maybe of the of the chasing pack to do that next season? Yeah, I do think they're best place the chasing pack. I think that to be honest, I think over the last few months of the season they were better than Chelsea. Even obviously Chelsea finished ahead of them. Chelsea were much better the first half of the season. Um, so I think Tottenham are the third best team in the country. Um, I think that they will, you know, they'll clearly improve more next year. It's Conte's first full season. He's going to have his first pre-season with the players this summer. Uh, some of the guys who I thought were really good last year, Kulisevsky, Romero, Benton Kerr, it'll be their, you know, their second season in English football. They'll be more settled. Um, and of course, they've still got Kane and Son. So I think Tottenham, I think Tottenham is set up to do well. Can they win the league? I think not. 
it's going to be really hard just because the level of City and Liverpool is so good. You know, yeah. City, like City and Liverpool both got in the 90s again last season, just like they did in 2018-19. I don't think Tottenham are a 90-point team yet. Um, I just don't think they've really they've really got the depth or the or the kind of know how to do that. But I think it's plausible Tottenham could get into the 80s of points, which of course they did for the last time under Mauricio Pochettino. And maybe if maybe if one out of City or Liverpool would have an off season, then maybe I could see Tottenham coming second under those circumstances. I think it would be. I think it's unlikely. I think it's unlikely that both City and Liverpool have an off year, but one of them could have an off year. Like it happens to big teams, you know, they just have a bad season out of nowhere. Happened to City a few years ago. Happened to Liverpool a few years ago. The World Cup is also an extra complicating factor. So maybe I can see that, but I, I mean, I would probably bet against Spurs winning the title at this point. Christensen, Scoval, City's got in behind the defence. Pull back! Oh, Christian Eriksen! Let's talk about Christian Eriksen, David. Another exclusive on The Athletic from yourself this week. Manchester United making an offer to sign him. I mean, if his story wasn't Mm -hmm. enough for us returning to playing football after suffering that cardiac arrest at the Euros, being back at Brentford, having a brilliant impact on their season, it put a smile on everyone's face, I think, seeing him back on a football pitch. But now potentially making a move like this as well it's uh it's the sort of end of the fairy tale in some ways isn't it amazing but if it happened it could get even better of course uh it's almost a year to the day i think that he collapsed on the pitch at the parkin stadium and his recovery has been spectacular of course he couldn't resume his career with inter milan because of um their regulations around heart conditions etc Uh, He went back and trained with Ajax, whose manager was no other than Eric Ten Hag. And then, um, of course, came to Brentford on a six-month deal. The Danish connection there helped that. And he had a really good time there, gradually worked his way in and made a really strong impact. Uh, I pretty much, correct me if I'm wrong, remember him playing really well at Old Trafford against Manchester United. Um, You know, his ball retention, his set-piece delivery, his maturity, experience, his quality, his passing, his ability to assist and score is what exactly what a Manchester United team, in my view, would be looking for at this point uh, in time with a new era on the way under Ten Hag, um, a lot of midfielders leaving, um, a need for... um, rebuilding and players who are capable of doing that. So yeah, as we broke on The Athletic uh, on Monday, Manchester United have made an offer to him and are among the teams who would like to sign him this summer. Uh, That suggests there are others as well. Reports of Tottenham, um, Everton, Brentford would have liked to keep him, but I think that's possibly unlikely now. He's released some quotes um, saying that he of course, would love to still play Champions League football. He knows how exciting that is, but it's not a deal breaker. So Manchester United, of course, not in the Champions League, but you imagine it might be an offer he would consider very closely and pay some real attention to. Um, And so, yeah, we don't know more at this stage, but Manchester United have made a proposal to him uh, and he will have to decide what to do about that and all the others. It's a great position for him to be in. uh, And as you say, a a beautiful story. Yeah, Laurie Whitwell, uh, one of the writers who have been covering the story Mm. of Frankie de Jong and the interest from Manchester United in bringing him in from Barcelona. Do you see Ericsson as an alternative to De Jong if it doesn't happen, David, or is it as well as? Well, that is not clear, Ian, but uh, my view is that it would be in addition to, because Frankie de Jong is, 
has been and will continue to be unless something dramatic changes Manchester United's key target for this summer transfer window and depending on who you speak to there's an expectation that it will eventually get done and this game of poker between Barcelona who need to raise funds but don't really want to relinquish their best player they don't want to show their hand too much they want to rinse Manchester United for as much money as possible versus Manchester United who are staying calm about the situation but their fans want to see signings and Eric Ten Hag wants to build around this player who he's worked with before and loves clearly. It will come to a crescendo at some point. Manchester United are adamant that they won't overpay for him and that they have other options. Um, but I don't think Ericsson is seen as another op- an alternative option because they're slightly different positions and they are losing multiple midfielders and there could be more movements in and out of Old Trafford. So I think Ericsson would be um, one potential target as a free transfer it's a bit of a no-brainer to make him an offer and Frankie de Jong I believe would be independent of that and if United managed to bring bring both of them in they would be fantastic acquisitions in my view in their own rights so um, I've not been made aware that it's one or the other no although I've not specifically been made aware that they're going to be signing both so it's a bit of a (laughs) delicate period with all these moving parts not just at Manchester United but at many clubs and uh, it's part of the beauty of the transfer window I guess all part of the fun absolutely (laughs) Um, Jack what would Bruno Fernandes be making of all of this that's a great question Um, I don't know I'm not sure where I don't know where how much Bruno Fernandes would fit into Ten Hag's system for next season like he's he's obviously a good individual player Fernandes but he doesn't really strike me as much of a system player he's also a 10 for a manager who doesn't really want to play with a 10 you know, Ten, Ten Hag's Ajax were really good, but they played a 4-3-3. They had a false nine in Tadic. They had two wingers and then hard-working midfielders. So, I don't I don't know. I think I kind of feel like Fernandez would have to take a lot of the sort of individualism out of his game to, to fit in with what Ten Hag wants. I mean, maybe he can do it, but he's not a player who I think, oh, yeah, he'll be brilliant under, under Ten Hag at Man United. Jack, he's just signed a new contract. I was going to say that, yeah. <laughs> well, how much would a say did Ten Hag have in that, David? Mm, exactly. Yeah. It's just classic United, isn't it? It's, you, get, you know, mm. the the decisions on the future of the players are made by, you know, the people rather than football people. This is exactly what Louis van Gaal was talking about the other week when he said they were a commercial club, not a, not a football club. So in that sense, um, you know, Ten Hag is clearly going to the job with his hands behind his with his hands tied behind his back because he's having players. You know, I don't think he's going to have complete control of the, the players that he would necessarily want there. I mean, you can see that in the fact they've got Cristiano Ronaldo up front. But anyway, you know, it's uh, it's a difficult. It's it's going to be interesting to see how Ten Hag how Ten Hag makes the best of the situation because he's clearly a great coach and they've got some great players. But I just wonder how well it's going to fit. But that's the fascinating thing, though, isn't it? Because this is why Manchester United have, have said that they've gone for Eric Ten Hag is because of the style of play, because of what he's been able to implement at Ajax, the system uh, that he's implemented, considering the, the structure of the club and how it's all fitted together. United is a totally different environment to that, and having these superstar footballers to then fit into a system retrospectively, Jack, is the challenge in a sense, isn't it? What he does with someone like Bruno Fernandes w- will decide whether he's a success at Old Trafford or not, won't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just a completely different form of management. Yeah. You know, man- managing a club like... Obviously, Ajax is... I don't want to disrespect Ajax because Ajax is a huge club historically with an incredible tradition. But compared to Man United, they're not a big club. Like, kind of, in terms of, you know, sort of global commercial reach and everything. 
And they're also a very streamlined club. Like when Ten Hag was manager, it was Ten Hag, Van der Sar, Overmars. Always felt like everything was pulling in the same direction. Whereas Man United is just like a massive global corporation. And it's just very different. You know, it's not just about the results on a Saturday or a Sunday. And so it's going to be really interesting to see if Ten Hag's management skills from from Ajax translate over to Manchester United. I mean, you know, it's not a perfect comparison, but look at the same with Pochettino, who did brilliantly with three clubs with, you know, Espanyol, Saints and Tottenham, you know, clubs of kind of rising size, but even Tottenham are not like the biggest club in the world. And then he goes to PSG, who are, you know, the the owned by Qatar and then the biggest, they're probably the biggest commercial club in the world now. And they've got Messi and Neymar. And it's really tough. Like, it's really tough for him to impose his style of play and his values and his personality on that dressing room and on that football club. Now, you know, Man, Man United are not PSG and Tottenham are not Ajax, so it's not exactly the same comparison. But you can see how Ten Hag might find it hard in a similar way that Pochettino did going into PSG. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, the Athletics' Greg O'Keefe joins us now to discuss the news that Everton owner Farhad Mashiri is listening to offers for the purchase of the football club. A really interesting piece up on the Athletic by Greg, Matt Slater and others. Um, it begins with the headline that starts with Explained Greg. Um, so that gives you an idea of just how complicated this situation is. It does, and... Isn't it always complicated with Everton? <laughs> Certainly, just at the minute, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, these days it, it feels like it. There was a lot to get into. You know, we needed the uh, the combined brains, me and Paddy, Paddy Boyle, my colleague, and, and Matt, the absolute um, mastermind of of these f- financial stories, as ever with these sort of commercially sensitive. You know, multi, multi million, hundreds of millions of pound takeover stories. Um, there's a lot of secretism. Um, you know, people don't want aspects of the deal in the public arena. And when it emerged, 
earlier this week, you know, it's then incumbent of us to try and explain to athletic subscribers just what's going on and, and what might happen next. And as you say, it was it was complex. You know, people don't want to talk about these types of things, not least because they sign NDAs at the start of the process and um, so non-disclosure agreements where they, they you know, it, because of the sensitivities involved commercially, you know, they're very, very reluctant or actually obliged not to brief. So, yeah, it was a tough one to pull together. But we think we've given as true a reflection of where the situation's at for our subscribers and everyone out there as we can at the moment. Yeah, it's even an interesting entry point into discussions, so to speak, about this potential takeover because supposedly the, the original um, discussion point was about financing the stadium and, and, and everything around that and, mm. and not the purchase of the club. And it seems to have, have gone that way during the discussions. Just explain how that's actually happened. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, they, the, the our understanding was that um, it's important to point out as well that the American consortium led by um, Peter Kenyon isn't the only interested party who uh, Mashiri and Everton have spoken to. But it may be that with the Kenyan-led group, uh, our kind of sense we got was that they've gone to Everton and said, look, let's talk about opportunities to invest. We're very interested in the stadium that you're building down there on the, on the River Mersey. You know, great potential. And you can understand why for investors and wealthy businessmen abroad who see opportunities in Liverpool, the infrastructure, the stadium, I live half a mile from there, Ian, and it's already taking very palpable shape. There's four corners. They've filled in the dock. There's various cranes, and it's beginning to take a presence on Liverpool's skyline already. The fact that it's not just water is progress in itself, really, isn't it, to be fair? True enough. True enough, because yeah. they had a lot of work to do before they got to this stage. It's actual ground now, isn't it? Which yeah. is a major, major part of the building work. Exactly. So that's going to happen. I'm more confident than I've ever been to say that. So as a jumping off point, I think that might have been the very initial premise of these talks. And my feeling is that they very quickly would have made it clear that the stadium is a reason why we're interested in taking a control and stake in Everton. So I don't think anyone at Everton would have laboured under the illusion that it was just about the stadium for long. But yeah, that's what we've been told, that that might have been one of the initial jumping in points. I mean, the overall sense, Greg, is is there financial concern for Everton? Is that why these talks are taking place? Obviously, last season on the pitch was poor, flirting with relegation for the first time in, in, in 70 years, uh, or what would have been the, the first relegation in 70 years. The issues around Alisher Usmanov's links with Russia and the sponsorship deals there are being suspended as well. Is there a concern FFP's been a problem for Everton in the last 12 months, 24 months as well? Yeah, I mean, yes, there is. A short answer is that, you know, been turbulent times, as you say, on and off the pitch. And they go hand in hand, really. I mean, a week ago... Uh, Farhad Mishiri, that the owner, broke his, his silence in terms of, of speaking to the supporters directly to apologise for the situation the club's in, the, you know, the situation primarily, which nearly saw them relegated, which, which would have been disastrous, you know, financially and in every other capacity, really. Uh, and he also, you know, vowed to do better. He, he admitted that there'd been significant amounts of money wasted, which again tie all ties into the bigger picture. Um, but it was interesting the timing of this the, the consortium story breaking because it was less than a week since Mishiri had spoken and like reaffirmed really his commitment to the club 
But I felt at the time in that statement that he reaffirmed, for me, what he was reaffirming was his commitment to delivering the stadium fully funded. I found that if you wanted, and it's probably easier with hindsight in, in fairness, um, if you wanted to, to, to talk about the messages, he was very much focusing on the stadium rather than perhaps saying, I'm going to be the, the, you know, the majority investor shareholder for the next 10, 20 years. So interesting. Um, and yes, there are financial concerns, particularly in this withdrawal of USM and their sponsors. As you know, Finch Farm, the training ground sponsored by USM, uh, various parts of the Goodison match the experience, the stadium, Megafon, one of USM's affiliate affiliate companies, excuse me, was emblazoned right across the side of Goodison Park. That's all gone now because of uh, Usmanov's status as an oligarch, according to the UK and American governments, obviously heavily sanctioned, and Everton had to suspend those partnerships. But the consequence of that was a huge financial hit for Everton. And who knows what it was behind the scenes for, for Mashiri, who's obviously a very close business partner of Usmanov and will yeah. certainly be feeling the pinch after all that wasted money, losing his key man. And then, of course, you mentioned the, the, the FFP. Everton's spending has been so excessive without bringing enough in that they, um, you know, they, need, they, need to, they need to change this. They really do, because they're going to struggle in the transfer market without, without selling some of their top players as well this summer. And what would a takeover mean for, for the stadium plan? That that seems the end goal and the, the biggest focus off the pitch for Everton at, at the moment is is delivering this. You said as well that Mashir has reaffirmed his commitment to that. Presumably he's going to try and ensure that it, it's followed through, whether he's the majority shareholder or not. Yes, I think the one thing that we can say um, with confidence is that the stadium won't be adversely affected. Um, the Bramley Moor dock where the stadium is, is being built now, like I said earlier, it's gone too far now for that to be to be you know paused or or impacted. Look, relegation might have been a different story. I have to say that's why yeah. it was so important. Everton stayed in the Premier League, and Absolutely. probably probably why that relief was so momentous when they did against Palace. But yeah, I think the stadium is delivered. Uh, how it's funded would be the interesting result of this, whether or not it's, it's say if it's American consortium who come in of hedge funders, whether they, how they pay for it remains to be seen. Cause we say in the piece, uh, I do honestly urge people to go and have a read cause it is fairly complicated. So I won't try and explain it here, but we do say it's quite interesting how Mishiri's ensured the money is going to be there for now. But I think he's going to want his money back, and that's where this, you know, the, the ownership, the consortium might might be involved. The takeover talks might be heading towards. Yeah, as you've alluded to, it's a fascinating read. Lots of detail in there as well. So go and have a look at that on the Athletic at the moment. But Greg, thank you for joining us and explaining at least a little bit of it. Thanks very much. Cheers. Okay, that's it for today. But if you want to read more on any of the stories that we've discussed on The Athletic, you can subscribe now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. And there's a piece on there at the minute as well that we really wanted to squeeze into this podcast, but we didn't quite manage it, about Vincent Company being appointed as the Burnley boss. And Andy Jones has written about one of the most intriguing managerial appointments in recent times, certainly in the championship in English football. But for the minute, thank you for listening. Go and check out those pieces and we'll see you on the next one bye bye the athletic